Take up your copy of the Word if you have it with you and open there with me to chapter 5 of Galatians. And we'll begin reading at verse 16. Hear now the Word of the Lord. This I say then, walk in the Spirit, and ye shall not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. For the flesh lusteth against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh, and these are contrary the one to the other, so that ye cannot do the things that ye would. But if ye be led of the Spirit, ye are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are manifest, which are these, adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lasciviousness, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, variance, emulations, wrath, strife, seditions, heresies, envyings, murders, drunkenness, revelings, and such like, of the which I tell you before, as I have also told you in time past, that they which do such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. Against such there is no law. And they that are Christ have crucified the flesh with the affections and lusts. If we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. Let us not be desirous of vainglory, provoking one another, envying one another. Brethren, if a man be overtaken in a fault, ye which are spiritual, restore such an one in the spirit of meekness, considering thyself, lest thou also be tempted. The Word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Our Heavenly Father, as we come now to the preaching of Your Holy Word, we are thankful that You have left this inspired, trustworthy, inerrant testimony of who You are and what You require of us. We are thankful for the instruction we find in Your Word, for the exhortations, the examples, the encouragements, and the laments that speak to every area of our lives and which reveal the very character of our great God. We ask and pray now that as we open Your Word and consider spiritual matters, that You would be pleased to grant the power of Your Holy Spirit in us be able to hear, receive, and understand, and that the same Holy Spirit would also work such sanctification in our hearts and minds that the pride of life would be put to death, and that our desires would be the holy desires with which you would be most pleased. This we pray in faith, for we pray in the name of Jesus, our Lord and our Savior. Amen. You may be seated. Last week, as we gathered for worship in word and sacrament, we looked at the fruit of the Spirit, as, which Paul described as love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. This is the beautiful Spirit-wrought fruit that adorns and nourishes the life of everyone who is in Christ. This morning as we continue with our text in Galatians, I would like to consider the work of the Spirit in four different aspects. These four aspects I have labeled death, 
life, stumbling, and restoration. Death refers to the mortification of sin. The daily struggle against the old man that each of us face. Life is the day-to-day walking in step with the Spirit we are called to. Stumbling occurs when we fall, when we fail to walk in step with the Spirit's leading, and restoration is that which is needed when we or a brother stumbles. It is what those who are walking in step with the Spirit must do rightly for the sake of their brother. And so Paul continues his exposition of our Christian walk with the indicative statement we find here in verse 24. And they that are Christ have crucified the flesh with the affections and lust. And this is our first aspect I would like for us to consider. Death. When Paul writes flesh with the affections and lust, he is speaking about the sin we carry within us. Sin that received a death blow. This crucifixion on the cross of Christ. We find the death of our own sinful nature in the death of Christ. And for those of you with good memories, if you remember back to Galatians chapter 2, you may note a connection between this verse and verse 20 of chapter 2 where Paul writes, I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless... I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. But notice one very important difference here. In chapter 2, we are crucified. In chapter 5, we do the crucifying. And they that are Christ have crucified the flesh. So we find here a both-and situation. We have been crucified and we daily crucify. This verse describes a crucifixion carried out by those who are, who are literally in Christ. In other words, God's own people are the executioners. Since the verb expressed in the, is expressed in the past tense, we know that this event has already taken place. But when? We first crucified the sinful nature at our conversion when we came to faith in Jesus. At that time, we went up on the hill at Calvary where Christ was crucified. There we were united to Him in His death. When we put our trust in Him, it was not only to die for our sins, but also to put to death our own sins. The cross of the Christ means death to our flesh. The trouble is that our sinful nature the sin within, that, that old man that remains has a way of climbing down from the cross. And when he does, he is able to make a remarkably speedy recovery, is he not? Partly because we have a way of helping him to do so. You could even say we are sometimes tempted to remove the nails and help our old sinful nature down from the cross and nurse him back to health. This is one way to describe the struggle we have with our besetting sins. Sins that we commit so often, they become bad habits. This must stop. 
the exhortation then is to us to not administer first aid to your flesh. Instead, treat it the way Jesus was treated at Calvary. As Riken says, mortify your sinful nature. Put it to death. From time to time, whenever it shows signs of life, say, oh no you don't. Don't try to climb down from there. Get back up on that cross where you belong. Then pound the nails in a little deeper. If you belong to Christ, you have crucified your sinful nature with all its selfish desires. Do not resuscitate it. Do not give it CPR. Do not keep it on life support. Just leave it on the cross and let it die. And I think the reason why we are to do this is obvious. For as Paul put it in Romans 13, for if ye live after the flesh, ye shall die. But if ye through the Spirit do mortify the deeds of the body, ye shall live. Ye shall live. We put to death in order that we may live and live to Christ. We daily crucify the deeds of the flesh. We repent. We cry out to God. We seek the Spirit's help. We believe the Gospel and make application. We exercise God-given faith and we crucify every wrong action, every sinful desire, and every evil thought. Paul tells us that if we mortify the deeds of the flesh through the Spirit, we will live. We will live. And this brings us to our second aspect. Life. Our response to the indwelling work of the Holy Spirit can be seen as a two-sided coin. If one side is mortification, the putting to death of the sinful man, then the other would be vivification, the coming to life of the regenerate man. At the same time that we are putting the old man to death upon the, Christ, upon the cross, we are nourishing the new man. Nourishing Him in ever greater vitality by the Holy Spirit. And these two aspects, mortification and vivification, go together. As Calvin put it, the death of the flesh is the life of the Spirit. And this reminds us of the second thing that the Christian must do to remain fruitful, to make manifest the fruit of the Spirit, which is to walk with the Spirit. In verse 25 we read, If we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. As Spirit-filled Christians, we are to walk with the Spirit. Walk in the Spirit. Or as some translations more helpfully render it, keep in step with the Spirit. The verb here is a military term used in the context of marching. We are to follow the orders of the Holy Spirit and stay in formation. You might also picture those marching bands with their intricate patterns that they form on the field. Whichever it is, in this verse, the Apostle Paul follows an indicative with an imperative. He tells us to become what we already are. The indicative tells us that all who belong to Jesus live in the Spirit. This is a truth. We need to believe it. This is who we are. At regeneration, the Holy Spirit enters the heart of every Christian. Yet we must keep on living in 
and by the Spirit, which is precisely, it's the very thing that the Galatians were failing to do. Paul had already asked them this stinging question in Galatians 3.3, if you recall. Having begun in the Spirit, are you now made perfect by the flesh? By starting in faith and then trying to continue in works, the Galatians had fallen out of step with God's Spirit. As we consider the imagery here, soldiers not only march in formation, but they also run in formation. When they do, there is only one thing they have to worry about, which is keeping in step. They do not need to worry about where they are going or how they will get there. They do not need to guess how much further they have to go. Their commanding officer will give them their orders as necessary. The only thing soldiers need to know how to do is to step in time. It is much the same way in the Christian life, is it not? The Holy Spirit directs our steps as we follow His leading. It is His job to keep us in line. As He calls out the cadence, all we have to do is keep our place in the formation, running and walking in step with His commands. But keeping in step takes discipline. And as we might expect, so does spiritual growth. The Holy Spirit rarely works in extraordinary ways. Instead, He uses the ordinary means of grace to bring spiritual growth. I think that's why we have these... Um, Agrarian illustrations, right? The seed goes into the ground, it dies, and it sprouts up, and it, it slowly grows up into a full plant and bears fruit. We're to use the ordinary means of grace, the, the reading and the preaching of God's Word, the sacraments of baptism and communion, and the life of prayer. Contrary to what so many Christians seem to believe, true spiritual growth does not come from some special, extraordinary experience of the Holy Spirit. Instead, it comes from walking with the Spirit every day. Finally, keeping in step with Him until finally keeping in step with Him becomes a holy habit. I like that term. A holy habit. J.I. Packer has an explanation of how the Spirit works and I believe it's probably worth quoting at length here, so bear with me if you will. The Spirit works through means, he writes. Through the objective means of grace, namely biblical truth, prayer, fellowship, worship, and the Lord's Supper, and, and with them, through the subjective means of grace, whereby we open ourselves to change. Namely, thinking, listening, questioning oneself, examining oneself, admonishing oneself, sharing what is in one's heart with others, and weighing any, responses, any response they make. The Spirit shows His power in us not by constantly interrupting our use of the means with visions or impressions or prophecies. Such communications come only rarely, and to some believers not at all. But rather by making these regular means effective to change us for the better, and for the wiser as we go along. Habit forming is the Spirit's ordinary way of leading us on in holiness. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control are all, each and every one of these, are habit 
habitual ways of thinking, feeling, and behaving, end quote. Packer goes on to stress that holiness by habit forming is not some form of self-sanctification by self-effort, but is simply a matter of understanding the Spirit's method and then keeping in step with Him. And I think this is a helpful summary. This is how God grows good spiritual fruit within His people. The more we keep in step with the Holy Spirit through the Word, sacraments, and prayer, the more fruitful we should expect to become. But every step is not always safe and sure. We are mere flesh and blood. In this side of glory, from time to time we do stumble. Which is our second point. The analogy of keeping in step with the Spirit also shows us where we ought to be in relation to other Christians. We do not march or run alone. Our brothers and sisters are right here beside us. Ideally, we are matching them stride for stride. When we fail to do so, when we stumble and are not keeping in step, chaos quickly follows. And it certainly isn't efficient, and it's not beautiful. Can you imagine that marching band out on the field not following the pattern thereafter, and not keeping in step with the orders and the practice they have put. It would just be a mess on the field, and so it is with us. And it is here that we need to heed this exhortation from verse 26. Let us not be desirous of vainglory, provoking one another, envying one another. I suppose it might be fair to call these the three P's. Pride, provocation, and pouting. These are the stumbling blocks in the Christian life. In each of these three, we get out of step with the Spirit and stumble and can even fall on our face. Again, these three are pride, provocation, and pouting. Yes, I said pouting. While envy is often deep and more permanent than simple pouting, I think the envy that we most often struggle with is something akin to pouting. We pout when someone gets the very thing we wanted but can't have, or when we don't get to have things our way. Pouting is evidence of spiritual immaturity and it requires repentance. Let that one sink in. Do you feel like you need to repent when you find that you have pouted? Pouting needs to heed the exhortation to rejoice with those who rejoice. Truth be told, pouting is never good, nor is it right. Children, do you hear this? How often do your parents tell you, stop pouting? Do you ever hear that? Okay, okay. I thought maybe so. Don't let the number of times that your parents tell you this this repeated command from your mom and dad. Don't let it become a noise that you tune out. Pouting causes you to stumble in your spiritual walk. Pouting and envying one another are actually genuine sins. Never let yourself think otherwise. And then there's pride. Pride is the power of the old man. Pride is the manifestation of Adam's first sin in all 
his posterity. Pride fails to honor God because it honors man. It glories in self. We know from 1 John chapter 2 that we are to love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. Pride is boastful. Pride is boastful, but boasting is excluded. Remember, even our salvation is the free gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast, as Paul writes to the Ephesian church. Pride is found at the root of every sin. Next time you're meditating upon your sin, ask yourself, where is the pride in this matter? And that brings us to provocation. Our third P here. We provoke one another when we push our brother's buttons. Provocation is present when we unrighteously challenge one another and stir up strife and division, especially within the body of the church. It is the outworking of the self-righteous man. One who provokes is someone who finds it hard or even impossible to submit to authority. And given the social media world we live in today, even those who are timid and shy, but who also have a provoking spirit, find it easy to provoke others at a distance. So the exhortation is, beware these three P's, pride, provocation, and pouting. These are spiritual fruit killers, and spiritual fruit spoilers, you might say. They cause us to stumble in our spiritual walk in this life. But when we do stumble, there is hope. One of the great benefits we enjoy in this life is the hope of restoration when we fall short. God's mercy is new to us each and every day. Know that. Know that. God is gracious and He has placed us in the context of others within His family so that when we stumble, repentance is possible and the gospel is sure and unfailing. We have the love of the brethren to help pick us up out of the ditch when we fall. And so this leads us to the fourth aspect I would like for us to consider of the spiritual life that we are to live found in verse 1 of chapter 6. Brethren, if a man be overtaken in a fault, ye which are spiritual, restore such an one in the spirit of meekness, considering thyself, lest thou also be tempted. As an aside, I assume that you all know this, but just in case you don't, the chapter breaks and the verse numbers we find in Scripture are not inspired. More often than not, they make sense and they are certainly helpful reference marker, but as I meditated upon this text this week, it seemed that the end of chapter 5 could be coupled with verse 1 of chapter 6, and so that's what I've chosen to do in case you're curious. There's so much, so much to unpack here in verse 1 of chapter 6 that several messages could be sent considering the instruction we find there. But for today, I will exercise constraint and fit some thoughts well within the confines of this morning's message. So with that qualification, let us take this verse and break it down a bit and see what the Spirit is revealing to the church through His Apostle. The verse opens with brethren. 
Paul is addressing his exhortation to the church body. When we read, brethren, we should sit up and pay attention knowing that we are about to receive something that is applicable to the whole church. When we hear brethren or brothers, we are reminded that the church is God's family. We are sons and daughters of the Most High God, adopted through faith in His Son. We are heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. One word, brethren, tells us much about who we are in Christ. And the next phrase is, if a man be overtaken in a fault. This is the situation being addressed by the Apostle. This phrase, overtaken in a fault, does not refer to deliberate habitual sin. It refers rather to an unexpected sin. Something a Christian does almost against his or her better judgment. He has yielded to temptation and fallen in sin. There's always an act of will involved in the sin. That's not what I mean. But this is not a givenness to sin. This is when the brother sins. It may even involve one of the very sins that Paul has already identified as the works of the flesh. A Christian who falls into this kind of sin needs proper spiritual care. He has stumbled and fallen and needs a helping hand. Thus Paul explains what to do, who should do it, and how it should be done. What, who, and how. What should be done for the brother who has stumbled? It is very simple. We are to restore him. The verb that Paul uses here is a term for healing that means to return to its former condition. It was used in medicine, for example, to describe the setting of a broken bone or a dislocated joint. In much the same way, a sinner needs to be put back in order. But unfortunately, we Christians do not always offer sinners very good treatment, do we? Sometimes, perhaps often, we ignore sin. Lacking the courage to confront it, we simply pretend it isn't there. We act like the timid medical student who sees a patient with a compound fracture. There's a bone protruding from his arm, but he's afraid to touch it. Therefore, the bone never gets set. And the wound never heals. Sometimes Christians notice the broken bone of sin, but never get past the diagnosis stage. They simply stand around talking about what bad shape the sinner is in. Wow, they say, would you look at that broken bone? I mean, just look at the way that's sticking out. Boy, I'm glad I don't have a fracture like that. Aren't you glad you're not him? Meanwhile, the brother or sister continues in the pains of sin. The kind of treatment, this kind of treatment, what would we call that? It's better known as gossip. Sadly, there are even times when Christians condemn sinners or blame them or even punish them for needing to go to the spiritual emergency room in the first place. They treat them like outcasts, harshly scolding them for being spiritually out of joint and apparently forgetting that they themselves are sinners in need of forgiveness and God's grace. When Christians are caught in sin, 
They do not need isolation or amputation. They need restoration. The proper thing to do is to help them confess their sins and find forgiveness in Christ and then to welcome them back into the fellowship of the church. But what if the sinner is unrepentant and doesn't want help? And that, honestly, is often the case. In that case, he is the type of patient who stays home and doesn't go to the emergency room, and the result is blood loss, gangrene, loss of limb, or perhaps loss of life. That is the saddest and most grievous of possible outcomes. Paul continues the instruction and tells us who should lead the effort in spiritual restoration. Ye who are spiritual. That's the title of the message today. Ye who are spiritual. Paul has exhorted the Galatians to walk in the Spirit. This is all about the life of the Christian. Ye who are spiritual. The rehabilitation of sinners is a job for spiritual people. Which in one sense would include all Christians, would it not? The moment that that anyone receives Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord, the Holy Spirit inhabits the person's heart. He is indwelt with Christ. The indwelling of the Holy Spirit is a doctrine you need to hold tightly to. From that point on, he or she is a spiritual person. There, there is, however, another sense in which some Christians are more spiritual than others. They are more mature in the Christian life. They do such a good job of what Paul was talking about in chapter 5 of walking in the Spirit, being led by the Spirit, keeping in step with the Spirit, that the fruit of the Spirit's work within them is obvious. Setting sinners back on the road and picking them up out of the ditch into which they have fallen is a job for Christians who have the fruit of the Spirit in abundant supply. You cannot provide that which you do not have. Ministry of this sort should overflow from an abundance of spiritual fruit. But who is spiritual? Who is this spiritual man? And I guess this is as good a time as any to bring us to the drawing that I included on the back of the liturgy. I'm sure some of you have been wondering about that. As I was reading through the commentaries, I ran across this illustration. The commentator writes, One of the most unusual figures in church history was a man named Simeon the Stylite. He was the first of the so-called Desert Fathers. Around the year 423, he constructed a short pillar on the edge of the Syrian desert, climbed to the top, and lived on it for the next 37 years. He actually constructed multiple pillars, but Simeon received many visitors to his desert perch. No doubt some of them came to see if he was out of his mind, but the hermit explained that he was simply a Christian who wanted to commune with God in solitude, free from worldly distractions. Living on top of a pole in the desert was his way of separating himself from sin and consecrating himself to God. As strange as it may seem to us today, the life of Simeon the Stylite raises an important question. What does it mean to be spiritual? 
As far as Simeon was concerned, one could be more spiritual in the desert than in the city. And more spiritual off the ground than on it. He was higher. The higher the better. But he was right about what it but was he right about what it means to be spiritual? So that's the question. This is the illustration. So what do you think? Was Simeon's austere, self-denying practice something that would cultivate much spiritual fruit in his life? Now, I don't want to sell this historical figure short. He did pray much before God. People came and sought his counsel. He even baptized people, I understand, from atop the pillar. But consider that life, 37 years up there, and think about the text before us. Brethren, if a man be overtaken in a fault, ye which are spiritual, restore such a one. How is someone who assumes the perspective on spirituality that Simeon had able to know about his brother's fault? He's living an isolated life atop the stylite, atop, atop the pole. How would, he, how would he even be able to rightly be considered among the brethren living alone with multiple visitors and you know, people journeying to talk to him as a spiritual person? There are multiple problems with Simeon's approach to being spiritual. I imagine that Simeon was completely dependent on the service and labors of others to provide food and clothing as he occupied his position atop the column and sought greater spirituality. As we have seen that we are to seek to restore a brother who is overtaken in sin and have learned that it is the spiritually mature person that is best equipped for the task, what then is the manner, the manner in which we are to approach the task? In other words, how? How do we restore our brother? Our text tells us to do this in the spirit of meekness. Last week, I defined meekness as the very manner of gentleness. It is a deeply rooted character motivated in love. Meekness issues harshness, defensiveness, and a brawling approach to life, especially in appealing to a brother or sister in Christ. It is strength of conviction, but bridled and under the control of the Spirit. And I think that definition applies well to the manner which we are to have in the process of restoration. And know that this is not always easy. Perhaps it rarely is. I would also contend that not every spiritually mature person is equipped to restore everyone who has fallen into every sort of sin. There may be personality conflicts that come into play when deciding who is most able to help a brother. Perhaps experience in dealing with a particular type of sin should be considered. Or perhaps we need to find that person who in that sin is able to rightly express Christ-like compassion. All of these are considerations that we need to evaluate when considering the restoration of a brother who has stumbled. I think these factors are at least a part of the warning that Paul concludes with when he writes, considering thyself, lest thou also be tempted. When you find yourself eager to help a brother or sister, and praise God that you do have that impulse. 
When you find yourself eager to help a brother or sister who is struggling in sin, first consider yourself. Are you desiring to help from a pure heart, motivated in love? Are you prayed up, having sought the wisdom that is from above? Is there unconfessed sin in your life that needs to be addressed? Is the sin involved in the matter an area where you also struggle? In seeking to help, you will likely be put into a position of greater exposure to the very sin that you are struggling with. If that is the case, then wisdom may direct you to seek to engage someone else in this particular situation. And I would say that in doing so, you would actually be exercising a good deal of spiritual maturity. And you're also taking care to heed lest thou also be tempted. Those who are spiritual then are supposed to be willing to restore with gentleness anyone who is caught in any transgression and any sin. Such gentleness is undoubtedly rooted in the knowledge of the gentleness that the Lord has shown to all sinners who have been united to Christ. We are to model Christ's gentleness as we seek to restore our brother. We are to engage the compassion that he would have, not our fleshly sympathy or compassion. No one, and we also need to remember this, no one can stand in the place of God and with a perfect righteousness preside in judgment over another. Rather, all of us stand in God's presence as forgiven sinners, and therefore, when it comes to restoring a repentant sinner, we should do so in gentleness and love, avoiding grudge-holding and bitterness, and filled with all truth. Moreover, the spiritual person does this because he knows that he too can fall into sin, even in his attempt to help his brother. The moment we think we are beyond or above certain sins, we expose ourselves to greater temptation. The one who thinks he is above the sin of adultery, for example, is likely closer to falling into unfaithfulness than the one who has a healthy fear concerning his own weakness. So these are the exhortations that Paul gives in the context of walking in the Spirit to ye who are spiritual, to live this spiritual life faithfully. Death mortification of the deeds of the flesh. Life, walking in step with the Spirit. Stumbling. We all stumble. If you think you're not stumbling, take heed. And restoration. Oh Lord, would there be a revival of godly biblical restoration in the context of the church. These are aspects of the life we live as Christians. We mortify the deeds of the flesh, walk in step with the Spirit, know and are aware of the pitfalls that cause us to stumble, and we restore one another in love. So thanks be to God who gives us His Spirit and who enables to enjoy all these His abundant, glorious, and beautiful blessings. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank You for the gift of Your Holy Spirit, and we thank You for the Gospel. 
We thank You that You have placed us in this place and numbered us among Your people. Lord, we are thankful for the body of Christ. And we seek Your blessing upon us individually and corporately. Make us, O Lord, such a spiritual people that we may be a blessing to one another and also to our neighbors and to our community. Fill us. Fill us with the power of Your Holy Spirit, we pray. For we pray in the mighty and victorious name of Jesus our Savior. Amen.